Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to James, letter of James, chapter 3. We're continuing our sermon series through the letter of James. And we're asking ourselves the question as we go through, what kind of community would the crossing be? What kind of community, what would we look like in here and out there, so to speak, if we believed, well, what James, the half-brother of Jesus, said he believed in the very first verse, that he was a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. How would it look like in our lives, more specifically, what would we look like as a community if more and more of us really believed that, that we would really kind of simplify it down to what James said in chapter 2, verse 8, that we would love God and love our neighbor, that that's the greatest commandment in the Bible, just like Jesus said. And last week, Keith talked about one area when we were in chapter 3 that this relates, and that is the, the power of our words, that we're created in God's image, and so like God, our words have power. They have power to create life, and they have power to destroy, and Keith talked about that from James chapter 3, and I want to pick up at the end of where Keith left off. I really want to kind of use the last verses that he was talking about. We're going to look at it, James chapter 3, 9 and 10. We're just going to read again where Keith left off last week. He says, with the tongue, again, talking about the power of our words and being created in the image of God, and therefore our words have power. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and here's the dichotomy and the broken condition of the human race. With it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. To James, that's like cursing God. Human beings who've been made in God's likeness, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Something about human beings created in the image of God, created in God's likeness. What does that mean? See, that concept is really one of the more overarching themes in the entire Bible, human beings created in the image of God. Starting in the very first chapter of the Bible, this is what we see emphasized in the first chapter of Genesis, verses 26, 27, 28, emphasizing the fact that God created human beings in His image. That that's the very essence of, of what it means to be human. And there's so many things that that means, so many things that we could talk about. Well, why is it such a major theme? And why is it so crucial for us to understand? At least James thought it was crucial for his readers to understand, and there are many reasons. I just want to mention just a, a couple today. That's all we have time for. And the first is this. It means that there is a rock solid, there is an objective, not related to who you are, what you do in the sense of unique about you, but there's a rock-solid, objective, irreducible glory and significance and value and worth about you. And if you're like me, I know you don't think that way about you, but that's the truth that the Bible's telling you about you. There's a, an irreducible glory. There's an irreducible significance and value and worth about you and every human being that there is. 
And that really is James' point, right? In chapter 3, verse 9, James is saying here that the implications of everyone being, regardless of who they are, what they do, what they believe, how they speak, whether they're your enemy or your friend, everyone being created in the image of God, that concept, that belief, that understanding changes the way you see yourself, the way you treat yourself, the way you care about yourself, and it changes the way that you see. It changes the way that you treat. That's James's point. It changes the way that you care about everyone else that crosses your path. It, it means that every person that crosses your path, you need to treat with a, a sacredness. They're in the image of God. Treat with a reverence for God. A respect for God. Treat with a kindness, a grace, a gentleness. See, it's a, it's a radical doctrine, and believing it will make you radical, especially today in our culture. It will make you radical in how you see yourself, how you see your life. And how you see and treat others, every human being. Now, on a much larger scale, backing up on a cultural level, this truth has radical implications for social justice, for civil rights. See, when we talk about social justice, when we talk about civil rights, where did those words come from? Where did the idea come from of civil rights? Social justice. What? The idea in our Constitution, albeit the found, some of the founding fathers, some of them were very hypocritical on this, nonetheless they understood the ideal, the idea, it's in our Constitution, that every human being has what they called inalienable rights, regardless of race. Again, some hypocritical, but they knew the ideal. Regardless of race, regardless of nationality, regardless of intelligence, regardless of capacities, regardless of abilities, regardless of wealth, regardless of power, and so on. Where did this idea of social justice, human rights, come from? Now, some might say, oh, I think it came from the Greeks, Romans, right? And in some sense, Perhaps the answer, yes, some sense. But read their ancient writings. I don't know if you've read their ancient writings. And you'd be shocked by how cruel and disdainful Plato and Aristotle and Greek and Roman philosophers and laws were toward the weak, toward women, toward the young, toward the poor, toward other races. Where did the idea of human rights come from? Here's where. It's undebatable historically. Here's where the idea of human rights comes from. It came from Christianity, from, from the Bible. And specifically, the spread of Christianity in the ancient world in the first and second centuries. That these truths have made their way into the philosophy and jurisprudence of civilization. It started, it spread from Christianity. And more recently, even in our own country, even in the last 50 years, more recently is where Martin Luther King got his inspiration for the modern civil rights movement. He believed and he persuaded a nation to believe 
that every human being, regardless of race or class or wealth, was made in the image of God and therefore had transcendent, inalienable value, and therefore had transcendent, inalienable rights. For example, when you read the speeches of Martin Luther King, and I don't know if you've read the speeches, I've read them recently, and especially in preparation for this sermon, and I'm amazed, I read a book, also a biography on him that had his speeches in it about a year ago, always have been amazed at, at, at how much he was educated in the Bible. I mean, as a pastor, I get it, but educated in Christian doctrine, and he was able to preach incredibly sophisticated sermons, and people understood him. I don't know that they could today. I'm not trying to cut down our country. I read his speeches, and I honestly don't know if the average person would be able to follow along. They were so educated and so sophisticated. Let me just give you an example, just even as it relates to what we're talking about today. Martin Luther King, in a speech called The American Dream. Let me just pull an excerpt. He says this. You see... The founding fathers, he's talking here about when they wrote inalienable rights. The founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the imago Dei, now he's quoting Latin, the imago Dei as it is expressed in Latin, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. He persuaded the nation, there is no gradation in the image of God. That's a powerful statement, intelligent statement, sophisticated statement. There is no gradation in the image of God. Do you know what that means? Do you get that? That somebody's image of godness is not based upon their capacities, their abilities, or anything else about them. It's based upon God. They're created in his image. Or, or listen to this, another sermon, where do we go from here, chaos or community? Martin Luther King writes this, every human life is a reflection of divinity. That's a synonym for saying an image of God. A reflection of divinity and every act of injustice mars and defaces the image of God in man. Persuade the nation of these things. And now some of you are going to say amen. Hopefully all of you are going to say amen to all that. But let me push a little further in something you might have a hard time with. Let me press one more thing, and, and, and it's a big thing. It's an issue of social justice. It's an issue of human rights. What it means to be created in the image of God that Martin Luther King applied to the issue of racial equality. Something all the earliest Christians believed and was an essential part of their message of social justice. Let me talk about how this image of God relates to the issue of abortion. Gets quiet. Some people moan. I realize in a church this size, we are a big community here. And we're not all going to agree on the same things. I get that. And I re realize a church of this size, there are people here in very different camps on this issue. I respect that. 
But part of being educated is to understand the argument you don't necessarily agree with. Let me just challenge you with that. Part of being educated is to be able to articulate the argument that you don't buy in a way that your opponent would agree. Yeah, that's pretty much what I believe. Let me challenge you with that, even if you don't buy it. Let me just, can I just push a little bit here as it relates to this issue, and hopefully I'll do it in a non-threatening way. Just challenge your thinking. There are issues in our day that are complicated. I, I understand. I admit, I don't have time to get into all of it, but I do admit that the issue of abortion gets very complicated. And I don't have time today to talk about all the complication aspects, give caveats, this, except for that. I don't have time for that today. I'm only going to discuss the issue at the larger principle level, the 30,000 feet level. That's all we have time for. But it is particularly when things do get complicated, issues get confusing, complicated, lots of different circumstances, when we especially need the wisdom of the ages, a wisdom beyond, a wisdom from outside our own little cultural bubble. And so here we go. About 3,400 years ago, after writing the account of God's creation of the universe and all of life on earth, the prophet Moses inscribed these words in the very first chapter of the Bible. These are the words that James is referring to in James 3, verse 9. It says this, Genesis 1:27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, notice the repetition. He created them male and female, he created them. Alike, male and female alike are in the image of God. Now, now notice what the Bible emphasizes through the repetition. Unlike any other life on earth, it is in the image of God, the creator of the universe that is imprinted on every single human life. It means so many things. But one thing it means that that's what gives every human being more value, more worth, more significance than anything else created on, on earth. And if you read the passage that this verse is in the context of, the whole passage, we don't have time for it, the image of God means, among many things, that God is the owner of all human life. He gives all other human life to humanity to rule over, subdue, subdue, all those kinds of things. The earth, the life on earth is given to humanity. But he keeps human life for himself. He's the owner of every human life. Now that sounds simple, right? That's pretty ABC, Dick and Jane, and yet it's profound. It is a radical understanding that will change how you see and how you treat yourself and every other person. Its profundity is in its simplicity. No one owns another human being. I mean, it's basic, but it's a radical idea today. No one owns another human being except God. This is why murder is so wrong. You're stealing a life from God. You're taking something that's God's. This is why suicide is so, so wrong. It is the final act of believing in self-ownership. You're stealing a life from God even when you commit suicide. And this is the crux of the issue of all crimes of human commodity. 
like slavery and human trafficking, sex trafficking, things like that. People can't belong to other people. They belong to God. So a slave master does not legitimately own a slave. He may think he does. A slave may think he does. He doesn't legitimately own a slave. A government does not legitimately own its people in spite of its boasting claims. And, specifically to our topic here, a mother does not legitimately own her child, even her child in her womb. For that matter, a mother does not even legitimately own her own body to do with it as she pleases. Only God does. No parent owns their child. God does. We don't own ourselves, our own bodies. God does. It's not your life. It's God's. And that's a fundamental truth. Simple, but incredibly radical. So notice what God tells Noah after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, verse 5. He says, and from each human being too, I will demand. This is God. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by human beings shall their blood be shed. Why? For, get this, in the image of God has God made humankind. You have taken something from me. Not when you kill animals, not when you kill plants, not when you kill fish, birds, not that you run around, run around shooting everything, but that's yours. Do with it what you want. Be a good steward. But when you take a human life created in my image, you have taken something from me, and I will exact a price. A price for a price. That's what he's saying. Now, let me jump for the sake of time right to it. The Bible teaches that a human being still in the womb is in God's image and owned by God. It's not owned by the mother, not owned by the state. It's owned by God. Every child in the womb is ultimately from God. Life comes from God, right? And owned by God. Simple, I get it, but radical in our day. And remember what Martin Luther King said, there are no gradations in the image of God. An unborn human being is still a human being and is owned by God, is loved by God, and is in God's image. And the Bible has examples of this in lots of places. I don't have time today. I'm just going to cite one. I'm not going to look at the verse. We don't have time for that. But like King David writes in Psalm 139, and he's talking about the incredible intimacy, the infinite intimacy of God as he relates to us. The infinite wisdom of God, intimacy of God as he related to David. And David says very clearly, That that was even the case when David was in his mother's womb. That God was intimately in love with David. Not a a clump of cells somehow going to be David someday, but he says, with me. When I was in my mother's womb, you loved me. You were intimate with me. You knew me relationally. Not knew about, you know, you knew me. With him. Now, I don't know if you went to see any films this year of the True False Film Festival. There was one in particular, it was called After Tiller. In my opinion, just as far as films go, I thought it was the best film at True False this year. Provocative, of course. 
I thought fair. I thought really well done. Very interesting. And it was about four abortionists in our nation who, who do long-term, late-term, I should say, late-term abortions. They do other abortions too, but, but, but particularly what's unusual about them is that they do very late-term abortions. And the film is about them, it's interviewing them, it shows them with patience, and one of the things you clearly see in the film is all of them are very kind, the abortionists. All of the abortionists are very kind, very compassionate people who love their families, and you can clearly see they love their patients. They are motivated by compassion and kindness, goodness, love. You clearly see that in the film. You can't deny that. I don't deny that. In one amazing scene, one of the abortionists, one of the female abortionists, speaks into the camera, very emphatic way, powerful way, powerful scene in the film, emphatically states that when she performs an abortion, she ends the life of a baby. Those are her words. She said that some people try to say it's a clump of cells or whatever to remove the fact that it's a baby. She goes, no, 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 no. And she looks right in the camera. It's a baby. She's done enough of them to know. It's a baby. But she flatly says that, that, that even though it's a baby, she will end its life, in her mind, justifiably. Now, this is not a Hitler. Kind, compassionate. So why does a kind, compassionate, loving woman able to end the life of a baby? Her words. Why? Because, here's why, the mother doesn't want it. And at that point, the baby depends upon the mother for life and doesn't have its own capacity to live. And this is the key ethic that's gaining momentum in our culture today. It's not new, it's very old, but it's regaining momentum in our culture today. That one's capacities equals one's rights. See, if you don't believe in human beings that they're in the image of God, what are you going to ground not just morality in, in general, morality is going to be an incredibly moving target if you don't ground it in who God is. But even more specifically, if you don't believe that people are created in the image of God, what are you going to ground human rights in? Tied to what? You're going to ground it in something else, right? Like whether or not someone is able to have their own capacities or preferences to live. If they don't, you'll, you'll see ending their life as possibly justifiable, depending upon the circumstances. See, only biblical Christianity brings a view of human beings that elevates them as intrinsically valuable, like Martin Luther King said, intrinsically valuable and significant regardless of their own capacities or preferences for life. But if you lose the idea, catch me on this, if you lose the idea that every human being is in the image of God, you will eventually lose your foundation for human rights. Historically, that's always the case. No exceptions. No exceptions. Not historically. That's why a good and kind and compassionate, intelligent person like the abortionist and after Tiller is able to violently kill an unborn but very late-term baby. Her word, baby. Now, if you go back 
to the pre-Christian world. The Greco-Roman world. They grounded the idea of a person's rights to a person's capacity for life. Capacity equals rights. The degree of capacity, the degree of rights. So for example, Aristotle justified enslaving other races because he said they didn't have the intellectual capacity for higher reasoning needed to govern themselves. But much worse than slavery, in the Greco-Roman world, they took the incapacitated, the elderly, the sick, poor people, and just let them die from exposure or let them be eaten by wild animals. And that was all legal. It was done all the time by good, kind, compassionate, loving, intelligent people. And you also had infanticide. And it was perfectly legal, especially if you had a girl baby. And Plato and Aristotle recommended infanticide as legitimate state policy. And we know from ancient writings, we know from the writing of the Roman philosopher Seneca, Seneca, for example, that the Romans regarded the drowning of babies at birth as both reasonable and very commonplace by intelligent, kind, loving people. In fact, the earliest known Roman legal code permitted a father to kill any female infant and any deformed or weak male infant that they wanted. Kind, compassionate, loving people. Let me just give you an example of that. There are, there are several. Here's an example of a, of a letter written in those days in the Greco-Roman world from a husband named Hilarion to a pregnant wife named Elise. Here's what he writes. Know that I am still in Alexandria. That's south of Rome. That's in northern Egypt, across the Mediterranean. They're doing business, probably, if not a soldier. Know that I am still in Alexandria. I ask and beg of you to take good care of our baby son. And as soon as I receive payment, I shall send it to you. Now, she's pregnant. So he writes, if you are delivered of child, in other words, before I get back, if it is a boy, keep it. If a girl, discard it. You have sent me word, don't forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you not to worry. Now, do you catch what's going on here? You hear the voice of someone very kind, very loving, very compassionate, intelligent, speaking tenderly about his son, speaking tenderly to, her, to his wife and her insecurities, but yet had no problem. In some sense, very much like the abortionist who's able to kill the late-term baby. In some sense. And in the Greco-Roman world, you actually had lots of abortion. Actually did. The ancient literature details an amazingly large number of abortion techniques, either by drinking almost fatal doses of poison. The key, the key was to, to have the, the mom drink enough poison to kill the baby, but not enough to kill her. That was a hard thing to get, right, you know? And they made a lot of mess-ups. Oops. Or uh, by cruder versions of the many same kind of methods used today, in fact. But obviously, back then, all abortions were very dangerous. But, but then something happened in this context of culture. Capacities equals rights. Something happened that we've talked about before, what historian called the Big Bang of human history, world history. 
In the middle of the first century, the Christians came on the scene, and they came, and among many new ideas, they happened to believe that everyone was made in the image of God. That's a radical idea. And because they believed in the image of God, regardless of one's own capacities for life, from the very beginning of Christianity, they were defenders of the weak. We see this in, in James. Defenders of the weak, defenders of the vulnerable and the unwanted, including the unborn and infants. We begin to see just how radical the New Testament really was in the first century Greco-Roman world with its morals and values. And the Christians began to speak against abortion and speak against infanticide. Just give me, let me just give you one example. We don't have time to cover all the more interesting ones too. But here's one I think is interesting. It's called the Didache. It was a formal doctrinal document in the church written about the end of the first century. So just a few decades after the Bible. And here's one thing you see in this document that the Christians said was just essential doctrine for Christians. Do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. Just right there. See, the earliest Christians were utterly against abortion because if you believe in the image of God in everyone, you have to be. Ultimately, you have to be. Otherwise, I don't think you really understand what the image of God means. About a hundred years later, in the middle of the 100s A.D., writing in the, right then, a Christian teacher named Athenagoras wrote to the emperor Marcus Aurelius. You may have heard his name, famous Roman emperor. And here's an excerpt of his letter, he, Christian, in the middle of the 100s. Here's an excerpt. He says this, we say that women who use drugs, poison, use drugs to bring on an abortion commit murder. And we'll have to give an account to God for the abortion. For we regard the very fetus in the womb as a created being. In other words, created by God. And therefore, object of God's care, God's love. Just like David said he was in Psalm 139. Here's another one written roughly at the same time. Mid-100s. It's called the letter to Diognetus. Now, it's somebody's description to somebody about Christians. We don't know who either the writer is or the recipient is. Keith mentioned this letter a few weeks ago in his sermon in James, but I'm just going to read it again because it gets to the point I'm interested in for our discussion here. It says, for Christians, here's the description of Christians in the mid-100s AD in the Greco-Roman world. For Christians are not differentiated from other people by country, language, or customs. You see, they do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect or have some particular, or excuse me, peculiar lifestyle. They live in both Greek and foreign cities, wherever chance has put them. They follow local customs in clothing, food, and the other aspects of life. But at the same time, they demonstrate to us the wonderful and certainly unusual form of their own citizenship. Here's what's unusual. They live in their own native lands, but as aliens. As citizens, they share all things with others. Every foreign country is to them as their native country and every native land as a foreign country. Now catch this. They marry and have children just like everyone else, but they do not kill unwanted babies. Huh, that's unusual. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. That's unusual. 
See, the early Christians were not just one-issue people. As we've seen in the letter of James, the early Christians were committed to moral purity. They don't share their bed. They share their table. And they were champions for the poor. And they were champions for the weak. And they were champions for the especially vulnerable, such as widows and orphans. We saw that back in chapter 1, verse 27. And for the exact same reason as we've seen in these documents, they were champions of the unborn and unwanted babies. See, because when you believe in the image of God in every human being, the ownership of God in every human being, human rights are elevated. Social justice is elevated. And the circle of protected human life expands. More and more people will be protected. But if you don't believe in the image of God, if somehow that idea loses from the culture, from the elite in the culture. If you only believe in capacities or some other trumped-up approach to why you believe in human rights, the circle of social, social justice, the circle will eventually contract. It will get smaller and smaller and fewer and fewer people will be protected. That's historically what's happened. So as we've seen, as we've been going through the letter of James here in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, all along, we've been examining what kind of community the crossing would look like. What would we look like? What would we be if we really believed the gospel? If we really believed, love God, love your neighbor. Here's what I think in part we would look like as we've talked through the book of James. We would take the image of God seriously in ourselves. It's a radical idea. And we would take the image of God seriously in others. And each of us in some way would do some part in caring for the orphan, the unwanted baby, the elderly, the poor, the weak, and the oppressed. And, and regardless of what the law of the land says, I think just like the earliest Christians, we too would have a radical conviction. We would believe that abortion is a violent violation of the image of God. And so we'd lovingly humbly speak against it. Not yell, not fight, but speak against it. It's injustice, just like we speak against any injustice. And we'd help desperate, vulnerable women find a better alternative of life rather than death. Helping them find a safe, helping them find a loving, adoptive home for their baby, for, for, for God's baby. And here's what else we'd do. If we apply what James says here in James 3.9, we would be known for treating everyone with value and significance and respect, regardless of what they believe, regardless of what they say, regardless of how they treat us, regardless of what they say about us, regardless of what they've done. And those who are for abortion rights out there and in here, many are in here, we want you in here, you're part of our church, we love you being a part of our church. We're not all going to agree on this. And the women in our church and in our community who have had abortions, and there are many in here, no doubt. And the men who have helped them have abortions, there are many in here, no doubt, many more will be coming. Would not, that they would not feel judged as terrible people, somehow worse people. Because James 3.9 says that you don't curse. You don't disdain. You don't demonize people, but you offer grace to everybody made in God's 
image. Because, see, the gospel tells us we have all done far worse. <laughs> when you know the first of the Ten Commandments, you know, murder is number six. But one, two, and three, don't have any God before him. Don't make a graven image of God. Don't take his name in vain. How you doing? We're all way worse than the number six commandment. When we understand that, when we understand the gospel, when we understand and honestly face all of our own rebelling against the glory and love and will of the creator of the universe, we don't even have a ground to stand on when it comes to judging others. We wouldn't be single-issue people either. We'd be for all the people, the innocent and the guilty, all made in God's image. And in doing that, I really do think we would be a very unusual community, just like the Christians in the first and second century, wouldn't we? So as the worship team comes back up, I want to read an email I got from a friend who's a Christian, and he's an OBGYN, and he and I are working on a project together. We've been working on something, and and so he sent me an email didn't know I was going to be doing this sermon. It's not about the sermon, but, but I do want to read the email. I think it relates for sure. He says this, from 1987 to 1996, I provided abortion services. This was during a time in my life when I was running away from God as fast as I could. Even before I returned to living for God, I came to understand what I was doing was very wrong and not at all in the interest of the family of the fetus slash child. I ended up leaving my position at the abortion provider. Having offered and performed abortions has left me with a bit of post-traumatic stress disorder concerning this. That said, I have been abortion-free since entering private practice in 1996. I now offer a very different approach, which is to preserve life even when it is far from perfect. It's not our choice. It is God's choice. My patients appreciate this approach, and there are plenty of children in Missouri now alive that other physicians would not have given a chance. I have learned that parents love their children even when the life of the child is short due to a lethal chromosomal problem or anomaly. I have learned that people love their child that is far from perfect. Most people, when told there is a problem with the fetus, are terrified. They need strength to get through the pregnancy. I help. God does the rest. It is a hard thing for me to talk about because I am no longer the person who did abortions and it is hard to come to grips with why I was willing to participate. I have asked for God's forgiveness. See, like with my friend here, you know, God does exact a price when we take a life and he's exacted the price of his son. How much are you worth? How much is anything worth? When you buy a house, It's not worth the price you put on it. It's worth what somebody's willing to pay for it, right? When you sell a house. You're worth what God was willing to pay for you. Himself. Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what you're worth because you're created in the image of God. No matter what you've done, no matter how low you've gone, all of us have gone lower. At least low is the same as the other. We are all a broken image still created in God's image and valuable to God. So much so that he died for you, he rose for you in the person of Jesus Christ so that he could fully restore you to his image because Jesus paid it all.
Let's find our confidence in that truth as we sing.
Will you pray with me? God, to hear that good news is what our soul needs most this morning. That Jesus paid it all. Every one of us has done unimaginable things, sins against you that are hard to even think about, much less talk about. But Jesus, our Savior, paid it all. He rose from the dead and promises to raise us to life. God, I pray that our heart would get that this morning and would swell in praise and love and admiration and devotion to our great Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.